This is Lord's Day 46 and 47 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And you can find this on pages 894 and 895 in the back of the hymnal. Beginning with question 120, let's read these responsively. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith then will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Why the words, who is in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way, and to expect from His almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Question 122. What does the first petition mean? Hallowed be your name means help us to truly know you, to honor, glorify, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them, your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. And it means help us to direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Amen. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for his help. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, and unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. Last week, we considered prayer as a topic and an act of devotion more broadly. That is, it is the most important part of our thankfulness to God. The most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us. That's what prayer is. And uh, we saw that God certainly hears us when we request, when we recognize our need, And when we rest in Christ, maybe you remember those three R's from last week, request, recognize, and rest. We also saw that the prayer that Jesus has given us in the Lord's Prayer is the perfect model for such an approach to God. It is the quintessential prayer, beautiful, efficient, a model, and a prayer in and of itself. Which is why we not only pray it every week to teach ourselves and our children what it looks like to pray, but it also guides all of our other prayers. It is the perfect model prayer. Today we begin looking at the parts, the particular parts of the Lord's Prayer. 
There is an address, an opening line, our Father who is in heaven. There are six petitions, and there's the conclusion in the Amen. And that's going to take us to the end of the year. A petition is simply an appeal to God. It's an appeal to God. We are asking Him to do, to accomplish something on our behalf when we petition Him. And there are six such petitions in the prayer that Jesus taught us. And in giving us these six, the Lord has taught us how to direct our minds to God when we pray. Our minds go in many different directions when we pray. And this prayer teaches us to direct our minds on the actual object of our faith, God himself. We're going to explore this tonight by learning that we first address him as father. Second, we address him in heaven. And third, we appeal to his name. First, then, we address God as father. He is our father. Jesus himself teaches us to address God as our father. And brothers and sisters, I want you to begin to grasp what a lovely thing this is. This is Jesus commanding us to have a new orientation towards God. In the covenant of grace, which is God's one big promise that spans both testaments. In this covenant of grace, God promises to be our God. I will be your God. You will be my people. The core promise of the covenant of grace. But through Christ, this union is closer. The enjoyment of God is better. The benefits are higher. He is not just our God. He is our Father. We draw near to this God. And we call Him by this very intimate relational name. Why is that? Question and answer 120 tells us. Through Christ, God has become our Father. The mediator of this covenant has caused us to draw near to God Not just as a distant God and an utterly transcendent God, but as our Father. When you pray, brothers and sisters, you are engaging with the triune God. You cannot contemplate or engage with the Father apart from the Son and the Spirit. John's Gospel says, All who did receive Him, meaning Christ, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, brothers and sisters, when you pray, draw your mind and your heart to this reality that you have access to the Father through his Son who gave you the right to become children of God. You cannot call God your Father except through Christ, who has given you this divine right. That's what the text says. You now have a right to call Him your Father, because you are now the children of God. And when you pray, you must call to mind and to your heart this reality that through the Holy Spirit, you've been adopted into God's family. Your status as a child of God 
And your right to call God your father is a triune reality. It is how the great Trinity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit has brought you into this heavenly reality. And you may call on God as your heavenly father because of the work of he himself and his son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. If you are able to call on God then as your heavenly father, it is no wonder then that Jesus tells us that in all things we should not be anxious about receiving what we need. We read from Matthew chapter 6 earlier, verse 32, Jesus contrasts the posture of unbelievers, he calls them Gentiles, with believers and how they handle the meeting of their needs. Everybody has needs. Believers and unbelievers, we have many common needs. And there's a kind of seeking after those needs. We have to have those needs met for body and soul. But Jesus says that the Gentiles go seeking after those things and nothing else. They go seeking after those things, but the believer perceives by faith that your heavenly Father knows what you need and provides it all. So we ask for the same things, we seek after the same things, but our priority is fundamentally different than the unbeliever. The unbeliever cannot call upon God as his heavenly Father, and so just goes seeking after the meeting of his own needs in his own ways. But believers call upon God as their Father, and we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that our Father provides everything else that we need. We seek the same things, but we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And we trust that this God who has become our Father through the Son and Holy Spirit is able to provide and desires to provide. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. That's what the catechism teaches us about God the Father. Secondly, we learn that we address him not just as father, but we address him in particular who is in heaven. He is our heavenly father. When we use the term father in our prayers... It triggers images of earthly fathers, other fathers, your own father. That's perfectly proper. Earthly fathers are supposed to be faithful earthly copies of God the Father, meant to emulate his fatherly attributes. And yet, what relationship between fathers and children is not complicated by sin? So there are many things that are communicated to us about God by looking to our parents. But Jesus himself teaches us to call on God as our heavenly father in order to make this crucial distinction. God transcends everything. He transcends our earthly parents and our earthly fathers. He transcends all things on earth altogether. And we have to have that fundamental distinction in our minds and hearts when we appeal to God. Question and answer 121 says that this this, uh, portion of the Lord's Prayer teaches us not to think of God's heavenly majesty 
in an earthly way. We're not bringing merely earthly concepts and ideas and depictions into this prayer when we call upon him. But we are transcending. We are causing our hearts and minds to transcend the earthly plane and calling on God and adoring his majesty as something that is not of this world, but transcends it. What does it mean to think of God's majesty in an earthly way? The catechism is instructing us here not to do that. It means something in particular. To think of God's majesty in an earthly way means trying to force him down to our level in our thoughts and our descriptions and our depictions. At best, when we're doing this, at best, what we're doing is coming with an incorrect idea and understanding of who God is. We're making him too much like us and like earthly things. So, for instance, God says through Jeremiah, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is saying, if you think you can run away and hide from me, you're acting like I'm you. Like I'm some created thing. I don't fill your little trinkets. I fill heaven and earth. I transcend this earthly plane. So at best, When we do this, we are just thinking of God in incorrect terms. That's bad enough. But a more sinister result is idolatry itself. And this is what Paul condemned in Acts 17. When Paul said, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. It is a problem that we bring our earthly conceptions of things in in an idolatrous manner into the throne room of God, so to speak, and call upon him as father, having missed that he is the transcendent God and that his heavenly majesty transcends all things. If we're not supposed to fill our hearts and minds then with those kinds of things, what should we fill our minds and hearts with when we call upon God? Question and answer 121 teaches us that we should fill our hearts and minds with a particular expectation. We should expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. We come, as the psalmist teaches us, we awake in the morning with great expectations that God will give us what we need. And whatever he withholds, we don't need it. Or we don't need it now, as we learned last week. We are to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. The best earthly fathers do their very best to provide, but cannot provide everything. They can't do it all. Much less can idols provide what we need. They, they do us harm. In the end, they take from us. These are earthly things. But our father... Is heavenly. He fills heaven and earth. In him we live and move and have our being. He gives us life and breath and all things, as Paul says. And so we bring this confidence into our prayers. When we contemplate God as our Father, we contemplate his majesty as heavenly, as the God who transcends all things. So he is our Father, and he is also, in particular, our Father in heaven. 
that leads us to consider and to contemplate that he is powerful in an almighty way. Lastly, we appeal to his name. We make an appeal concerning the name of God. We've just looked at the address of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Here's the first petition, the first appeal that we're making. Hallowed be thy name. Think about what you're actually appealing for God to do when you pray this prayer. Hallowed be thy name means let your name be treated with reverence. It means we're we're saying to God, cause your name to be set aside as utterly holy, sacred. Notice the connection here between this petition and the third commandment about blasphemy misusing the name of God, using his name in vain. We cannot misuse God's name, use it flippantly and irreverently, and with the same mouth, appeal to God to let his name be treated reverently. It is incompatible. So in obeying the third commandment and learning to treat his name with reverence, we also come praying and ask God to cause his name be treated with utmost reverence and awe. In Scripture, God's name is not abstract. His name is intimately tied to acts and to attributes. This is a very important point. I think I would say that if you take away nothing else from the sermon tonight, I'd like for you to take this away. God's name is tied intimately to his acts and his attributes. To know his name and to appeal to his name is to begin to understand what he does and who he is, his acts and his attributes. Here's what I mean. When God acts in history, it doesn't just reveal an action. It's not merely an event that is taking place that God happens to have orchestrated. When God acts in history, it reveals God to us. It reveals his attributes, his characteristics. So, for instance, Moses knew that God had the attribute of steadfast love. God is love. How did Moses know this? Well, on the one hand, God told him so. Exodus 34, he says, I'll tell you my name. I'm the Lord, the Lord. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But before God ever told Moses that, he showed it to him. He saved Moses and the Israelites, and he brought them out and so revealed his steadfast love. God's name is tied to his acts and his attributes. It's not, we're not calling upon an abstraction when we call upon God. We are calling upon the personal God who has revealed himself to us as our Father and who acts in history to make his name known and to make his name great. Our prayers, therefore, should be filled with adoration. I wonder if we do this enough. And by raising that question, I'm saying we don't do this enough. We don't spend enough time in our prayers, I think it's safe to say. We tend not to adore the majesty of God in our prayers. But we ought to learn to remember God's acts and attributes 
by name in our prayers and to thank him and praise him for them. And this is modeled for us throughout the Bible. And because we're going to sing Psalm 90 once again in just a few minutes, here's just one example of how the Psalms do it. Psalm 90. That Psalm opens saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you would form the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The psalmist, who happens to be Moses here, by the way, is proclaiming in his prayer that God brought forth the mountains and God acted in history to make his people dwell within him. And God has existed from everlasting to everlasting. He's eternal. The psalmist here teaches us to bring up by name God's acts and his attributes to remind ourselves what he has done and who he is. Why should you pray like this? Because there's nothing better or more important than knowing God. Jesus said the night before his crucifixion, he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the prayer of the Son to the Father. This is eternal life, that they know you and me. We must come to know this God. And when we pray this prayer, hallowed be thy name, what we are asking God to do is to spread the fame and the great reputation of his name, not only in our own hearts, but throughout the world, that we might come to know this God by his acts and by his attributes in history, by his creating and saving works to the ends of the earth. So brothers and sisters, let this become your daily prayer, that God's name would be set aside as holy in all your thoughts, words, and deeds, and that you would come to a deeper knowledge of his almighty power and his fatherly goodness to you through Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you build your church on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. Assist us, we ask, in meditating with joy on your mighty acts. Enlighten our minds more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Kindle in our hearts a love of your truth. Nourish us with the full counsel of the word of God. Enable us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and defend us from the sins of heresy and schism. And as we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us by your great blessing, may it be preserved among us and propagated through us by our lips and by our lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.